Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to round three with one of my favorites, Lizanne Saunders. Welcome from Nantucket. Thank you, Keith. Nice to be here, as always. Yeah. Sorry it's not in person, as we've done many times before, but this will have to do. It's, it's start, we're starting to get closer, and if that happens, you can't hang out in Nantucket in Florida anymore. So, or maybe you want to bet? <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. technology doesn't die when everything's uh, fully open again, so we'll see. <laughs> That's awesome. Well... Um, congrats on that uh, on that article, or I think it was called "Songs of Experience: Reminiscence of of a, of a Strategist." You know, for I'm, I'm assuming that that was uh, just a a bit of a, a riff on Jesse Livermore, uh, correct? It, it was. I mean, you know, the, the the first part of the title was, as I always do, a rock song title, and that was, of course, you two. And then the second part was a riff on uh, the um, reminiscences of a stock operator, which is one of my favorite books about this business of all time. I I, I couldn't agree with you more. You and I agree. Uh, just to be put on the table, everyone. We uh, she and I agree on far too much. Uh, so this is not going to be like a backslap. It's not going to be a debate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in terms of approach, like we really do, like I think we kind of grew up in the business the same way. Uh, you're younger than I am, of course. This is what your 15th year <laughs> doing it. And uh, she actually puts in that article how many years she's been doing it. I, I dare you to guess. Uh, but when you get like like Marty's wag, you know, don't fight the tape. Like I grew up same way at a hedge fund. John Dawson, Art Samberg was called Dawson Samberg. As you know, it's like you, know, you have to, at, at a very basic level, I think, or we don't have to do anything, let's just be clear, but you and I have always had a keen appreciation for what the market may know that we don't, correct? That's right, absolutely. And, and not only that, I also think that, and one of the first quotes that I put in that report a couple of weeks ago was probably the most famous from Sir John Templeton about bull markets are born in pessimism, grow in skepticism, mature in optimism, die in euphoria. And what I love about that is that it highlights that sentiment probably more than anything else at major inflection points is arguably more important than any of the fundamentals we obsess about on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's economic data or inflation data or earnings. But then on top of it, even if you have a, a high conviction sense from a sentiment perspective that we may be at or approaching an inflection point, you need that, that, that trend component of it uh, too or sometimes you can end up being really early to um, either the beginning of the party or the end of the party. Yeah, that part, I mean, that part of it, uh, I'll struggle with that until I'm on the wrong side of the grass, I think. But I mean, just trying to be early uh, or on time, there's a big difference. And um, yeah, I prefer to be on time all the time, but you know, nobody really can do that all the time unless your name is Bernie Madoff. But if, 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 you, if you like think about it, the positioning sometimes lines up like the street, for example, right now, uh, guys, if you can show futures and options contracts, one of the biggest positions people had was basically being long deflation or duration. People were long 10-year notes. They're long dollars. Um, and then you get this massive move in a, in a very short period of time in interest rates. Uh, I wonder. So that's my main question for you. Who's got it right? I mean, today is a good, 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 good day to ask the question because the bond market, um, a breakout in bond yields, 
is not signaling the same thing that the stock market is. So I think it's premature to know who's got it right. You and I have talked about this. I think regardless of the environment, it's important for equity investors to heed the messages coming from the bond market, whether it's the treasury market or, or corporate spreads. That said, there's certainly speculative positioning can can exacerbate moves in in a in a you know benchmark like the the ten year yield, and I think that to some degree happened into the late March move up to just under 175. I think you got speculators that got caught a little bit flat footed on the short side and had to cover, and that arguably yeah. exacerbated the move back down to 112 or so on an intraday basis. Arguably, that may have overstated what was happening in terms of fundamentals. But I think we're at a little bit of a stall right now as we try to suss out whether we truly are shifting to a very different secular phase in terms of inflation. And we did see very recently the correlation between bond yields and stock prices dip down back into negative territory, which is where we were for the 60s, 70s, 80s, into the 90s. And then we shifted to that more deflationary environment. It's maybe too soon to suggest that that correlation having reverted to negative is a signal of a secular shift, but it is certainly at or near the top of the things that I'm paying close attention to. Yeah, it's a t- it's a, it's a especially a tough spot because we had, and, and tell me if you disagree with this or not, um, I know what I, I, the rate of change data says, so I highly doubt you disagree with me. But you know, did we or did we not peak cyclically in the second quarter and decelerate in the third quarter with the Delta variant, U.S. economy? So I think there's been a lot that has been directly tied to the Delta variant. I think you see it in a variety of economic data, goods versus services. I think you see it in the market, whether you look at a breakdown between cyclicals and defensives or higher multiple segments of the market versus more, quote, value-oriented segments of the market. I think that absolutely was a shift that occurred. And also, interestingly, and probably not coincidentally, it also came at about the time where we saw a peak in the growth rate of liquidity measures such as money supply and the Fed's balance sheet. We haven't seen a peak in level, but the growth rate started to ease at the end of the first quarter. And I think those are all tied together. And I really think it's been important in this environment of the market having been so resilient, looking under the surface at the churn and leadership changes that I I think have been fairly easy to explain by virtue of not just what's going on in the bond market, but to your point, Delta variant and its impact both on the growth side of the equation and the inflation side. Yeah, that um, uh, that like just so people know what the rate of change did, like on slide um, the year-over-year rate of change on GDP growth on slide 13, you could see it went from 12 to six. I mean, and the you know on a year-over-year basis. So again, most people knew that that was going to happen. Uh, I, I think that I at least was a little surprised at how quickly it started to slow, but then not surprised because I didn't uh, wasn't so surprised by the Delta anymore in terms of the Delta you know, the Delta variant. But if you look at um, slide 44, here's one you know slide maybe Lizanne that explains. What and I want to get your thoughts on this. Obviously, this is like again, it's a it's it's the causal factor. COVID went up, consumer confidence went down. You had a bad jobs report, and the services sector, uh, services side of the economy slowed. Like everyone knows that bond yields weren't going up while that was happening; they were going down. Um, then all of a sudden, you know, you get the inverse of that, which is the COVID cases. Next chart, guys, uh, rolled over. You know, they're down 40 uh, percent week over week. You know, last week. 
And my working, my, my signal here is that these all four of those charts back to slide 44, Lizanne, are going to reverse with the inverse of COVID. And, and that's what I think the bond market's signaling. But I, I have a lot of people that disagree with that, so feel free to. Well, so I, I think there's more to the trajectory of economic data right now than just COVID cases, because I think, although not permanently entrenched, I think the supply chain bottlenecks and disruptions, yep. of course, driven by COVID, aren't going to automatically adjust simply because the rate of change uh, moves toward the better for cases. And I think that's the rub because it's not only now a story that ties into the inflation narrative, it's actually a story that ties into the growth nar narrative. Um, not to mention the fact that associated with a more stringency in parts of the world with regard to any uptick in COVID and the greater willingness and speed with which shutdowns happen, that feeds into the supply chain bottleneck problem that, again, has not just been a feeder into the inflation numbers that we are seeing, but now is acting simply as a constraint on, on growth. And I don't think the, the COVID cases rolling over is as big a needle mover there as might have been the case even a few months ago. Well, a lot of those, I mean, the way I think about that is through the lens of inventories, which, you know, when I look at the big components of our GDP or any GDP model, you have the services side, which slowed decisively. That wasn't yeah. a, that wasn't all bottleneck. That was Delta variant in a lot of different uh, respects. Yeah. And we have not released the Kraken on those rate of change charts at any level. You know, they're barely positive on a year-over-year -year basis. But inventories were grossly, you know, not just understated, but they're bottlenecked. It's even on the cover of Barron's, for God's sakes. It's not like nobody knows this. Um, inventory, so I think of, of inventory as being that story, whereas I think of the services economy as being the reopening. What, what do you think? So uh, I, I agree with you there. And I, and I think the what was miscalculated, I think, when we saw the reopening, and this is several months ago now, is I think some of the more extremely bullish economic views out there, called yeah. the Roaring Twenties folks, <laughs> that view was, was, I think, based on an assumption that goods demand would, would remain really robust and that you would just uh, add to it the pent-up demand on the services side. But what we saw was a bit of pent-down demand on the goods side and a shift to demand on the services side. There's also dislocations that are unique to this pandemic because of the combination of the pandemic shutting down access to services at a time when we saw unprecedented liquidity infusions, both on the monetary and fiscal side. That meant you had a period that was fairly lengthy where you had demand surging and even though initially supply could meet that, you then have a bit of the opposite right now. Supply constraints by virtue of COVID at a time where, at least on the services, we saw that pick up in uh, demand. I think really key to the story, looking beyond the pandemic, if we ever get to a point where we can truly say post-pandemic, will be that relationship between the, the goods and the services side of the economy. It was it was our view back many months ago that we were more likely to see an easing in demand on the goods side because so much of that demand had been met. And then I think the inventory piece, to your point, there was certainly a lot of hope when we had the weaker than expected Q2 GDP, given that a lot of that weakness was driven by the inventory yeah. component, 
that we would get the reverse of that in the third quarter. And and yep. that has proven to be something that at least has to be pushed out, which is part of the reason why GDP estimates, you know, Atlanta I'm Fed not. GDP now has gone from over 6% to now uh, only 2.3%. And I, I think pushing out that inventory rebuild is uh, is part of that. See, my, my numbers for the first time, I, I when I deviate from from the Atlanta Fed, I, I generally take a position. Um, so if you look, guys put up slide 14, my quarter over quarter SAR numbers have actually gone up a little bit for the third mm-hmm. quarter. Um, and again, you know, or for the you know, for the for the fourth quarter and the fourth quarter, I think the third quarter is priced in. I mean, we're it's October. It's not even the third quarter anymore. So yeah, I get that people are going to talk about it on the conference calls. Yeah, I get it's on the uh, on the cover of Barrons, but at any level, if inventories are released in the months of October. Any any level, you know, we can use something simple like autos, which um, uh, you know we're at, at levels that you know slide 55 guys. I mean, it's 88 percent below the mean. I mean, the normalized mean going back our entire career. I mean, these things aren't going to stay ball underwater forever. So that's one point. I agree. And 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 the next point is on this. So the inventory piece to me would be a bonus to my number because it's not taking up my number till because we now cast right. So our numbers only inventory if it came in higher or lower, it would just go into my now cast. But on services, I, I just can't I can't find a case for Americans not you know having the biggest Thanksgiving ever in terms of getting back together or uh, rate of change accelerating on slide 58. This is the one. This is what Lizanne's been talking about. She's the almost well, she's one of the few people that I could talk to where every word is a time series in her head. It's emblazoned in her head. The baby blue line is what she said is is, is con- on the right side, which is consumption durables, which ripped and then they rolled over, and then there's the black line, which hasn't done anything yet, which is the Consumption services is the biggest part of the economy. Um, so I'm betting that that's going. I think bond yields are betting basically that that's going to be going up for the next three to six months. And all I need is the next three. What do you think? And and I I think you're you're right. It's just a question of uh, timing. And yep. and that's Rob. I, the inventory rebuild story is an easy one to tell. What's more difficult when, is yeah. trying to find the point at which we really start to launch. And that's where we go back not just to the Delta variant, but the virus more broadly. And where the risk lies, as we've learned the hard way over the last year or so, is that whether it's another variant, whether it's uh, news with regard to um, when you start to see a wearing off of the benefits of the vaccine, there are so many factors at play. You can look at, at the rate of change in terms of overall cases, and and that looks like a really, really powerfully positive chart but we saw that last year too when yep. wave two started to to roll over. And I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm, nor am I a, a Debbie Downer, and saying, look out, you know, whatever the name of the next variant is going to be, vaccine resistance is going to be bigger. But we're all at the mercy still, sadly, of this uh, of this virus in terms of those trends, but also just human behavior and consumer yep. sentiment. And so I, I agree with you. I just don't know that we're imminently there in terms of uh, of the timing. Well, that's why I use the bond market as my signal. Like I was, um, you know, just to put it on the table, you know, my, you know how my quads are defined, right? So we went yep. from quad two, which is peak nirvana, growth and inflation accelerating at the same time in the second quarter, to quad three, where you get a real growth slowdown. And yeah, I got lucky, unfortunately, with the Delta you know, being something I didn't know was gonna happen, made the numbers slow even faster. But again, the bond market signaled both the up move in bond yields into the second quarter, and it signaled the down move throughout the delta in the third quarter, and now they just took off again. So to me, like first of all, the bond market, it's the fourth quarter. 
the bond market is not trying to sniff out what happened three quarters ago or what's on the cover of Barron's. It's figuring out something. There's only one quad, Lizanne. I back-tested it, as you know. There's only one quad where interest rates break out to the upside, which is quad two. And quad two is not the Atlanta nowcast, which is a qu another quad three, right? Because you get real growth slowing is quad three, real growth accelerating is quad two. So that's what I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting my ass kicked in this position today on parts of the growth side, but on the inflation side, I'm fine. Um, but that's definitely what I'm, 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 I'm trying to, you know, kind of wrestle with here because it's day to day. It's like schizophrenic market it action. Is. There's a lot of what we call the chop, uh, and chop is where I like to take a, a position that's against the street. Uh, the, the chop has been extraordinary. If you look at whether it's a day to day or week to week, month to month basis just the sector rotations and there are bedfellows that tend to be paired together on a day you've got you know energy or utilities and energy yeah. and financials at the top of the leaderboard you can almost be guaranteed that tech and comm services are going to be at the bottom and vice versa and the swings have been rapid fire and there are times you can directly tie it to the covid trends other times the the move in the 10-year yield and i'm not sure we get out of that environment anytime soon what's interesting though is under the surface if you if you look at factors as opposed to sectors yeah. or in particular as opposed to traditional style indexes there's this quality theme or override that has been a pretty consistent leadership factor regardless of whether you're screening for quality within more value-oriented sectors or more growth-oriented sectors and i think taking more of that factor approach at least in the near term, probably still makes more sense than trying to pick our sector or two that is going to be a consistent outperformer. Yeah, well, I, I, I break all that down daily, weekly, monthly, trending or not. And uh, it is interesting, too, like if you just and again, it's only a one week move. But last week during the stock market correction, high beta, basically high beta, high leverage and small cap all outperform for the first time in forever in a down week. Right, that's that's different than quad three, which is to your point, quality work throughout the, the the third quarter. But if that flips, you know, which is basically led by energy to the upside because it's levered mm -hmm. and it's high beta, you know, then that would be a problem for Wall Street. And again, it would be much like the problem they had missing quad two the last time because what happens after that is factor exposures like high short interest start to rip you, you know, the wrong way. And to me, it's it's just a really interesting to watch. I mean. I, we have you and I have a competitor, Mike Wilson, who's like he's long defensives. Well, if you were long defensives, which would be sectors like consumer staples, utilities, last week, you got crushed. I mean, you, that's not what the gold, long-term bonds going down. That's not how a how um, a quad three or God forbid a quad four. When when we say defensives, like you, you and I have no problem going to defensives for a long time. Well, we've, the, we've the thing about um, uh, labels like. Uh, defensives or, or even labels like momentum. I, I think what trips up investors is a misunderstanding that with a with a, a characteristic or a factor like um, defensives, it doesn't always mean defensives. consumer staples and utilities. Yeah, exactly. You know, during the worst part of the pandemic last year, the defensives were the big five. Yeah. They were they were Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. Not your classic defensives, but in an environment where everything is shut down and the only ecosystems in which we're living were tied to stocks like that, mm -hmm. that was the pandemic era's defensives. In turn, utilities live in the value indexes. Um, 
that doesn't mean there are always value stocks. Uh, in <laughs> aggregate, they're more expensive than the S&P. That doesn't mean they're growth stocks. It just means they're expensive stocks that live in the value indexes. So that goes back to what I meant about you can, particularly if you're a stock picker, you can screen for certain characteristics or factors without putting blinders on as to where you look for them. And I think yeah. the whole, in particular, growth value discussion never goes deep enough. Um, right. And when I hear somebody say just growth or value, my question that always pops in my head is, well, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the growth and value indexes? And even if you are, just look at the vast differences in terms of, of sector and industry exposure across whether it's the three major growth indexes, S&P, Russell 1, Russell 2, same with the value index. There's twice as much tech exposure in S&P growth and Russell 1 growth as there is in Russell 2 growth, where there's twice as much healthcare exposure in Russell 2 growth. And you get the same big divergences in areas like financials with the value indexes. So I often talk about growth and value, but it's mostly in the context of the fundamentals of growth and value, not the predetermined index labels associated with that. I think that's totally old wall, like you know, growth value and just keep saying it or 60-40, saying it and saying it and saying it. It's like, come on, like, so let's get up to speed with the, the modern game and the you know, modern day analytics. I mean, guys, can you show our factor exposure table that I was just calling out? It should have some purple arrows on it. I mean. You know when I'm when I'm when I'm saying that high you know you know the the high high debt to enterprise value trade and or high beta moved last week. I mean that, that's what that's that's what the the numbers are doing. So back to Marty Zweig's point, which don't fight the tape. I mean if you get if you get that to continue, that's going to be new. That's how I do it, Lizanne. I literally I don't care about anything else, as you know. Like I literally say, okay, bond yields is happening and that starts happening then that's telling me we're not going into the end of the world. We're about to reopen the economy, and it could be back to the quad two trade. So we'll see. You know, if that reverses as of today, then I'll say the opposite tomorrow. So it doesn't, like, you don't, it, it, what do you think about that? Because a lot, a lot of people obviously think I have a lot of issues, me, me included. Uh, but, um, you know, because I really don't care what I buy or sell. I don't, I'll short what I was long, I'll buy what I was, you know what I was short, and 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 that's just the way that I am. I'm just going to use what the market's doing as my lead navigator, as opposed to what I have. You know, I'm not an intellect. I don't need to you know, be an intellectual about what's going to happen that isn't happening. I, I have a tough enough time with what is happening. Here's here's where you and I differ, not in in terms of our our approach or in belief. I think if if in my world there was more of a a goal to kind of be right at the right time with not extreme decisions around positioning, but um, that is your job, uh, especially tied to your constituents, your client base. I think it's a very different world from my perch at, at Schwab with yeah. now $7.7 .7 trillion in <laughs> almost exclusively individual investor money. And there always, I think, needs to be underlying the, the message that, that somebody like me imparts, which will be high conviction at times, an expressive view in general on market direction without trying to be the perfect market timer, because that is not an approach that individual investors, for the most part, should take. I always say, and I, that one of the more common questions I get from traditional financial media, especially when the market goes into a more volatile phase, is, okay, Lizanne, are you telling your investors to get in or get out? And I have a love-hate relationship with that question because 
I, I hate it because I think it's a, it's a dumb question, but I love it because I get to explain why I think it's a dumb question, which typically starts with neither get in nor get out is an investing strategy. That's simply gambling on moments in time and you have to be right twice. And I think for individual investors, the most important message is that it's not what you know, meaning about what's going to happen in the next month or two months or week or even quarter with regard to what the market's going to do that matters. It's what we do throughout the process. Yeah. And so I think there's a subtle difference, especially relative to maybe somebody like a Mike Wilson, somebody at one of the traditional investment banking wirehouse firms that maybe has more of an institutional audience and gets involved in the, the competition around year-end price targets. And we just take, I think importantly so, given our client base, just a different approach that ties into what actually are the pillars of success for individual investors. And, and trying to time the market is always difficult, but when approaching it with an all or nothing, all in, all out, back up the truck, dump the truck, um, I think that's where you can really trip up individual investors. Yeah, for me, it's um, about making quad pivots. So it's, you know, I, I like to think that no matter what your, um, whoever you are, institution or an individual, you'd prefer to be on the right side of the cycle than say that you can't time that. I mean, cycles are absolutely timeable, um, not by everybody, um, but in hindsight, you can always look back and say, okay, that's where growth slowed, that's where it accelerated. So, you know, it's a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fair uh, goal to get up every morning trying to, to time the cycle using the market signal. What's interesting about what you just said too is that um, it's kind of it's there. What Zweig would say, and what I think Charles Schwab himself would say, which is you, you, you can't time markets. Um, those things don't always go together. Right? I mean, how do you how do you say that you know don't fight the market if it's a signal and at the same time say that that's not a signal or it's not a timing signal? You see what I'm saying? Well, it's a question of what the what the sort of subsequent say asset allocation recommendation right. is. Uh, even at a moment like in late 07, that that I had a, a very very high conviction view that what was happening was a literal and figurative house of of cards. Um, what you what then the message is i think differs depending on who the client is who yeah. the audience is even if i were talking to at any point in time if i had the highest conviction view on say both the equity market and the bond market yet uh, sitting across from me were two investors a investor a is you know 22 years old they just inherited $10 million. They don't need the money. They're not going to obsess over every wiggle in the portfolio. They're, they're big. They go bungee jumping and, and skydiving on the weekends. Uh, they don't need to earn income. And then investor B is 75 years old, has a nest egg that they built over decades, can't afford to lose any of the principal and need to live off the income. So yep. one view on the market, what I would tell those two investors, is entirely different. So I think that's really the point behind the way maybe we approach things a bit differently than than some that are not thinking in the context of well, who is the investor? Yeah, well, it's it's always the toughest thing. I mean, when you have so many different people and so many different goals. I mean, that's that's why I always go back to just execute on your process, execute on your process, and let everyone do with your process what they want to do with it. Right? If you want to. If I'm right on quad two and you want to be wrong on the 10-year yield all the way up to 175 and you know 
do that. You know, that's totally up to you. But it's not like I'm not saying, and I think we're both actually, I, I think you're around 170, 175 on the tenure, aren't you? Or well, we you? don't we do not do forecasting yeah. on, um, on that kind of stuff. Uh, me, me, that's just going back to where we were. So it'd be just a mean reversion to where uh, the tenure yield went during, you know, quad two. So that's, you know, it's like, you know, you'd like to know that. If we get real rates rising, you know, that's bad for gold. You know, you should know that, right? There's no case to be made that real rates rising is good for gold. There never has been. Um, so that's... That's what I um, think about that. How about we get um, some other people's questions because I have too many for you. And last time with Ben Hunt, you know what I did, Lizanne? I forgot. I didn't forget. I just kept asking them questions, and then we didn't have time for. And you never got to Q and A. With you, I was just trying to figure out. Where ben I'm... always generates a uh, a great roster of uh, of questions. I'm a big fan of his. Oh, he, he's awesome, isn't he? That guy. Yeah, he is. He, yeah, he's awesome. He's such a good guy. Like, he is. He, he can be so, like I said, you can be so angry about something, but you smile when you say it. Yep. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so good. His, his temperament is well suited to uh, to this uh, this business. <laughs> I think, I mean, he literally reminds me of like if I was talking to Ben Franklin instead of Ben Hunt, that's what it would be like. <laughs> like good analogy. Encyclopedic and everything. Um, all right. Here's a good question. Uh, Tim in St. Louis, uh, is it possible Zen, to invest long term anymore in such U.S. markets where price discovery has been rendered obsolete? Now, that's that's his opinion. But um. so I actually think, if anything, um, some of the shorter term forces, whether it's price discovery caused by or exacerbated by central bank policy or the vagaries of the, the covid cycle, if anything, I, I think lengthening time horizons will serve you better than dramatically shortening them and then trying to, to play the shorter term game because of how many forces exist outside of what historical forces have been, whether it's high frequency trading, the new advent of what um, you know, Reddit fueled retail day traders are doing. So uh, I, I absolutely still believe in long time horizons in an environment where over the past 40 years or so you've gone from double digit years in terms of the average holding period down to single digit months hmm. um i think that pendulum arguably swung too far toward the short term um which you know a short-term trader isn't going to uh adopt that view but i think long-term investors ought to be comfortable in a longer term time horizon because i think over any reasonably longer time horizon there is a more definitive connection between fundamentals and prices it's part of the reason why valuation is a terrible market timing tool regardless of what metric you look at there's no correlation between any version of pe and subsequent you know 6 or 12 month returns but you start to extend that out over a 10 year period of time and that's where the messaging is is a little more consistent with uh, with subsequent performance. Yeah, the uh, the quads explain valuation much more succinctly than the you know the valuation explaining the cycle. I mean, if you're quad three stagflation in the 1970s, which I want to get your thoughts on next, I should have asked you this anyway. Um, but if we were to have pervasive stagflation, like the 1970s, the S and P 500 went to seven times earnings. Let's just start there. That that would be a pervasive. Quad three. That's what I'm mostly concerned about here for my own positioning, Lizanne, is that I basically, and I took my time, like, like I should, I didn't like all or none it, uh, but start taking out some of my quad three stagflation longs, stayed with all my inflation longs, and got a little growthier, a little bit more cyclical on into the quad two push. But 
you know, over time, it's pretty easy to see a longer-term stagflation if the Fed comes in and bails things out and takes the dollar back down. What do you think about that? So I don't think we are yet sowing a sufficient number of seeds to suggest a systemic wage price spiral 70s style version of stagflation. Right. I think there are still more differences in the current environment uh, than uh, similarities. Yes, you can simply look at the trajectory of, of growth expectations versus inflation and say we're in a stagflation environment. But what we had in the 1970s, aside from you know, the, the, the wage and price controls, there was the psychology and power associated with the spiral that meant it what became systemic in terms yep. of workers' demands for higher wages, companies' willingness to pass on those higher costs. There was greater unionization. There was less globalization. It was much more of a closed economy. Um, the Bretton Woods, I mean, there there there's so many factors at play. It, it, it'll gives you a, a checklist to keep an eye on for the medium to longer term to see whether we are planting some of those seeds. Um, for now, though, I don't think that that represents uh, a significant risk, not to mention the huge difference in productivity. I, I think that's probably the most important component of math that is a big difference now versus the period of 1970s. And if there's any silver lining to this pandemic that we've been living with, as I think it's provided actually a boost to productivity yep. that will be long lasting. So um, for now, that those are the things I'm, I'm hanging my hat on with regard to whether we're entering that kind of environment. Uh, but again, I also uh, have I know what the checklist should be to see whether maybe the, the, the landscape is changing. No, that was, uh, again, that was encyclopedic. It, it embedded in her comments were time series as far back as you can go uh, on all the things that really matter. It's not the 1970s, and but the word stagflation, when I say quad three, I'm always going to say stagflation, but I'm, you know, there are very different kinds of stagflation. The stagflation that China's having right now versus what was defined as quad three in the USA, which was just a rate of change slowdown with inflation spiking in the third quarter in the U.S. Um, on, that, on that productivity point, I, I should have asked you about this as well. I thought one of the, the least reported numbers last week, um, or at least least talked about by people that you and I compete with, was the CapEx number. I mean, the CapEx number, uh, I look at everything on a two-year basis, you know, so, so I'm not just caught in a one-year base effect uh, right now, and, and CapEx accelerated on a two-year basis to 8.5% versus the prior month, and that, to me, that, that's an investable story. I, and, and that's where my optimism is greatest when I think beyond the, the sort of vagaries of the COVID era is I think we are going to see an economy that shifts more than just marginally toward the investment side and maybe by default slightly away from the discretionary consumption side of mm -hmm. our economy, certainly boosted by the uh, demand piece, the consumption that was driven by all the stimulus that we talked about, especially when things were uh, shut down, funneled toward the good side of the economy. We did see, as of second quarter, consumer spending get to more than 70% of GDP. I don't think that that falters significantly, but I think as time goes on, we're going to see the investment side of the economy, both on the residential and non-residential side, business capex, and then possibly with a kicker if, if something ever passes out of Washington on the infrastructure piece. And I think it's a cross segments of the economy, not just tech-oriented, efficiency-oriented, which has been the bright spot 
even when CapEx has not been a, a terribly compelling story. But I think across the spectrum of infrastructure, education, healthcare, um, residential investment, even the kind of rethink about commercial investment. And, and, and that's, to me, one of the longer term, most optimistic stories about some of the shifts that are occurring in our economy. Yeah, when you, if you just look at, um, guys, put up um, slide 54, where we are in the inventory cycle, it's a great time to be investing in, in having capacity. I mean, that, that chart's never going to be that low for the rest of our lives, you know, Lizanne. That's, that is and way if you look at the, the age, if you, I don't know if you have a chart of just the, the age of a lot of, of uh, you know, structures, more traditional yeah. um, segments of infrastructure, I mean, you know, most of this stuff is is older than me, which is uh, which is you know beyond middle age. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Come on, Come on. Well, it was unless just... I'm gonna live unless I'm gonna live to uh, well over a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question. This one is um, from uh, he's he's got the second most upvote, so I, I, I'm gonna ask it. It's not it's not accurate in terms of what it says entirely, but uh, I'll ask it anyway. He said he believes that last time Lizanne was on that you you thought we were going to go from in my vernacular quad two to quad three instead of and he says instead of like hedge I was calling for quad four that's not true we were calling for it said quad four and we're saying that the probability was rising of quad three and it ended up being quad three and we're on the right side of that thank thankfully um, but but does she see a quad three this is the most this is a good question do you see that the most likely outcome for 2022 being stagflation, quad three, or deflation, quad four, pick a quad. I mean, what do you think it's going to be? Um, I, you know, it could even be an environment where it's both, uh, where yeah. if some of these supply chain bottlenecks maintain that, that sort of upward pressure on traditional inflation metrics and a still widespread between measures like PPI and CPI, that could carry into uh, 2022. I, I think whether it's the the number of container ships sitting off the ports uh, the fact that even though there are plants that are starting to come online new plants in terms of semiconductors a lot of the estimates for when that problem starts to unclog continue to get pushed out into the second part of of 2022 so i think i think the next year could be um a year that has both of those stories yeah i do too I, I i think quad four by you know the middle of next year is is well against those base effects it's it's a mathematical certainty it's just whether or not markets you know interpreted it as much um the the toughest base effects in the history of base effects what could possibly go wrong um here, here's um and now that everybody's a base effect yeah, and now everybody talks base effects. It's everybody great. talks about base effects. I no longer feel compelled to explain the, uh, the the term. If you if you haven't heard it, I you know I'd love to know what lovely rock you've been living on because it's a happy place where we don't worry about stuff like that. The best is the Fed. Like they understand base effects, but they don't understand how to use them. So that that's even better. Against steepening base effects, let me help you. Against steepening base effects, inflation continues to accelerate. That's that's a problem. All right, uh, Dave in California, Lizanne. This is a great question. Um, Lizanne, you recently wrote um, you wrote that piece reflecting on your career. Broadly, what's one of the biggest differences between investing today versus when you started? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> first of all, I touched on the the, the time horizon uh, piece, the average holding period, and it, you can look at different metrics that will focus on holding period for individual stocks versus, say, for mutual funds. More recently, of course, ETFs, but a, a dramatic shortening. But also. 
I think the biggest difference is just how democratized um, we, I say collectively, we, the broad industry, but I would certainly credit to a great degree somebody like Chuck Schwab himself for, I think, launching that process of democratizing investing and bringing costs down and access up and giving investors a much wider berth in terms of uh, the ability to take, call it more of an endowment approach and have diversification, not just be limited to stocks, bonds and and cash. Um, I, I think that's been the biggest difference from when I was starting. And then just the access to information, the access to education. I think there's, you know, limited excuse for not taking advantage of that greater, greater source of, of information and education. There's also a lot of noise that's come along with it, and that sometimes <laughs> yeah. is tricky to navigate through that noise, but there's never been a better time in terms of access to information, access to investment vehicles and strategies at a cost that is is a fraction of what it was 35 years ago when I started in this business. Yeah, there was nothing. There wasn't even the internet. So let's let's just right. you know like the um, but now. Voltron was uh, was the yeah, and it was messages were on those little. Uh, this was even before your time, Keith. Was on those little pink pads where uh, you had to write out you know to and from and time and uh, if if your office got a call. At six o'clock at night, you didn't get the message until the next day when you got in, and it right. really is remarkable the technology change. You're right. My first uh, my first day as an intern on uh, uh, Tiger Williams Trading Desk, he'd um, he'd, he'd given me an internship there, and uh, I I had to write out well, punch them, but black tickets were buys and red tickets were shorts, and. Uh, you know, that's how I, you know, hashtag timestamp. That's what, yeah, I thought of the timestamp. Now it's a little... I would analyze company earnings by looking at the, I, I forget, I think it was the third section of the Wall Street Journal, and that's where you got earnings information. Again, yeah, there was there was no, there was no internet. Uh, I think our kids' generation <laughs> can't even fathom a world with, uh, with no internet, let alone, you know, voicemail and cell phones. <laughs> it's really incredible. Yeah. All right. Here's a good question from Mike in Connecticut. I, I, I personally, um, this is a, this is actually a tough, tough one. If you can't time, yeah. if you can't time markets, Lizanne, or rely consistently on negative correlations, how do you advise drawdown adverse clients to survive the next major market correction? Do they use stops? I think there are various strategies that individual investors can employ, and it depends on on what the the overall structure of the portfolio is, how broadly diversified it is, whether from a turnover perspective, tax implication perspective, it's appropriate to use, whether it's stop loss points, um, whether some hedging can be done in the options market. Um, the the one I think overarching strategy that that is um, maybe more brilliant than a lot of other traditional disciplines is periodic rebalancing. And I think there are times, especially when you start to see elevated volatility and you see more rapid fire sector rotations or even factor rotations, if you let port, your, you know, portfolio volatility be your guide to the periodicity of, of rebalancing, of course, it forces us to know what we were we, we know we're supposed to do, which is not so much buy low, sell high, if that infers all in, all out, but add low, trim high, and stay in gear by using volatility to your advantage. And I think for a lot of more trading-oriented folks that don't have a plan, 
they tend to do the opposite. They, yeah. they let their winners run until it becomes an outsized portion of the portfolio when the inevitable you know, Ben Graham reversion to the mean happens, you're left holding a bigger bag than you would have otherwise if you just heed the discipline associated with rebalancing. So I think the timing around rebalancing and and maybe considering less calendar-based static rebalancing and more portfolio volatility-based rebalancing can sometimes help weather an environment uh, where risks go up, as does volatility. Yeah, we use um, what we call the it's a volatility adjusted risk range of the market. So at the top end of the range you sell some, at the bottom end of the range you buy some. If you keep doing that, you know, if you have the di- the hardest thing to do is have the discipline to do that because to Absolutely. your point, you know, behaviorally people are risk averse. So on, yep. at the low end of the range they're scared to buy, at the top end of the range they're reluctant to sell. If you actually just do it with Bitcoin, we've taught a lot of people how to do it with Bitcoin. I know nothing about Bitcoin, but I'm long Bitcoin. And all I do is do that. So I'm low end of the range, I buy some, top end of the range, sell some. And then I don't have to Honestly, I think that should in particular be applied to some some of the more uh, speculative segments of the market. And I think that's one of the things that has made a year like this incredibly unique because there has been a lot of focus, including by me, on some extreme signs of kind of speculative overdrive. <laughs> it just has been more concentrated in non-traditional segments of the market, whether it's crypto or SPACs or non-profitable tech or heavily shorted stocks or, you know, penny sheet stocks, zombie companies, bankruptcy stocks, whatever subcategory you want to talk about. And uh, so when I hear the market has been incredibly resilient, aside from the churn under the surface, which we already talked about, many of those aforementioned spec areas have had drawdowns this year of 30, 40, 50, 60, in some cases, if you look at the meme stocks, 70 or 80 yep. percent drawdown. So this idea that the market has been completely resilient to these spikes and sort of speculative froth suggests you're not, you need to look beyond just a benchmark closing index like the S&P 500. Yeah, the um, again, look at everything on a volatility adjusted basis instead of the simple moving average of things, because it's the particular move in volatility that catches people offside, as uh, Benoit Mandelbrot would, t- would teach people. It's not the average of things, it's the particular things. So uh, this was, in particular, uh, a great discussion. So thank you for, for making some time for us. My pleasure. I always enjoy it, Keith. Thanks so much. Awesome. She's Liz Ann Saunders, and I'm Keith McCullough, and I'm signing off for today. We're going to be back tomorrow with three more Real Conversations. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Real Conversations, brought to you by Hedgeye. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.